everybody. Let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for uh, the church that you're building worldwide. Uh, all over the world you're building your church. And we're grateful for the sheep that you have brought here today. Uh, just in the brief couple minutes I've been in the building, we have somebody mi- visiting from Minnesota, uh, another couple visiting from California. So thank you for sending all these people our direction. And I just pray that today, uh, anybody that's in the building or listening online, that they would be fed. And uh, you were pretty clear with Peter. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Uh, that was said not once, not twice, but three times. And so I just pray that today the sheep uh, would be fed so that they could have the nourishment that they need for whatever it is they're facing. As we look into your word, both in the Sunday school and in the worship uh, hour that follows, and only you can do this work, a human teacher cannot accomplish it, but you can do it through your word Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we ask that you'll do this today through the teaching of your word. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen. All right. Well, if you could um, locate in your Bible the book of Colossians, chapter 2. And... If you're having trouble finding Colossians, once you get past the big books of Romans and the two Corinthian books, just remember, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And some of you say, well, Pastor, I'm on a low-carb diet. I can't think about popcorn right now. All right. Just think of God's electric power company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you'll run into it. Um, We are continuing on our teaching on the rapture of the church, having completed the content. But before we left the content, I wanted to give people a chance to submit questions, and boy, did they ever. We have just a lot of questions, and I tried to pick the ones that seemed to be bothering the greatest amount of people. And so the two questions that we're looking at, question one we actually almost finished last week. Question number one, will the rapture occur on a Hebrew feast day? And then another big question that people want to know about is the book of Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. And they want to know, is that a rapture passage? So we were in the midst of dealing with number one. Will the rapture occur on a Hebrew feast day? And not to not to be a spoiler, but the answer is um, it could occur on a feast day. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't have to happen on a particular feast day. So that's the what, and anybody can answer the what. The issue is, why do we say that? And that particular question um, involves four more 
complex issues that you have to look into. But even before we get into that, what we're ta- everybody's talking about these Hebrew feast days. Uh, what, 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 what is it that we're even talking about here? The Hebrew feast days you'll find um, delineated in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. And there were seven feasts that God commanded the nation of Israel to follow and to practice. Um, one of the things that's difficult about studying the feast days is you can get so into the minutia really fast that you forget what the day is about. Kind of like how we celebrate Christmas, right? Uh, we, we have so cluttered it with all kinds of things that we kind of forget it's Jesus' birthday. Can we sing happy birthday to Jesus? You know, no one does that because we've crammed it with a bunch of other stuff. That's what happens to these Levitical feasts. So let me just give you like a 10,000 foot level explanation of these feasts and what they mean. Um, the first feast, the first four feasts are spring feasts. So they happened in the spring according to the Hebrew calendar. The first was Passover, and you know what Passover was. Um, It had to do with the release of the children of Israel after 400 years of Egyptian bondage. And what really broke the back of Pharaoh was the judgment that God brought into Egypt in the book of Exodus in plague number 10, where God killed all of the firstborn all over Egypt. And then God was very clear to the Israelis, the Hebrews, who were captives in Egypt, the way to be exempted from this judgment is kill the unblemished Passover lamb and apply the blood to the doorposts so that when I come with plague number 10, I'll see the blood on the doorposts and my judgment will pass right over your household. Hence the word uh, Passover. So Passover basically is a holiday that they began to celebrate to commemorate their redemption. Redemption means release from bondage out of 400 years of uh, captivity in Egypt. And then they were to celebrate the second spring feast, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because it takes time for bread with leaven to rise. And God told the nation of Israel, I'm going to get you out of here, Egypt, so quick. There's not going to be time for bread to rise. And so unleavened bread became sort of a symbol within the nation of Israel concerning how fast God got them out of Egypt. And so to commemorate their separation from Egypt... Um, God gave them a special feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then there was the third spring feast called uh, First Fruits. And that's basically when the initial crop came in. And that was always a happy time because if the initial crop came in, that gave them confidence that the full crop or harvest was coming in. So they were to celebrate the third spring feast, which was... Praise the Lord for the initial crop. And then the full crop came in and they were to praise the Lord for the full crop. 
and that's what they were doing on the fourth spring feast um, called the Feast of Pentecost or the Day of Pentecost. Then there's a long gap between the spring and the fall on the calendar. So as you get into the fall, there were three additional feasts that they were to celebrate. Um, the first of the fall feasts was trumpets, and that was basically the celebration of the new year. I think the Hebrew name for that is Rosh Hashanah, if I got that right. Each of these have Hebrew names. Then there was a second fall feast that they were to celebrate, and that's called the Day of Atonement. Uh, the Hebrew name for that is Yom Day in Hebrew, Kippur covering and you see the uh, all the all the interesting details described in the book of Leviticus chapter 16 where they were to um, bring into the central sanctuary uh, basically two goats one of them was released into the wilderness and the second one was killed an unblemished animal so the one that went into the wilderness symbolized something called expiation, where symbolically speaking, the sins of the nation were attached to that goat or the consequences, I should say, of the sins of the nation were attached to that goat. And as that goat went into the wilderness, it basically was symbolizing that the sins had been taken away from the nation, the consequences for one year. But the other goat was to be killed and that's what you call propitiation. Uh, propitiation is the satisfaction of divine wrath. So because God's wrath against the sins of the nation had been satisfied for one year, Yom Kippur, propitiation, uh, God could look the other way, so to speak, or not hold the nation accountable for its sins for an entire year. So expiation, goat goes into the wilderness, propitiation, the death of the sacrificial animal, covered the nation's sins for one year. And it was only good for a year because the next year they had to do the whole thing all over again. And the next year came, they had to do the whole thing all over again. And so it never permanently resolved the sin problem uh, but, of course, it kicked the can down the road for at least a year. So that's what's going on there on that second fall feast. And then there was a final fall feast, a third fall feast called Booths. Uh, I think the Hebrew word for that is Sukkot. And it had to do with the fact that God did such a great job taking care of the nation of Israel all those years when they were wandering around in the wilderness before they finally got into Canaan and the land was prosperous enough, the land of milk and honey, to sustain its inhabitants. But all of those years before they went into that prosperous land and they were in the Sinai desert, um, they had to be provided for. And so God starts providing for them like clockwork with manna from heaven in Exodus 16. And that manna falls for 40 years because there was 40 years of disobedience. You'll recall when 
the generation that came out of Egypt was prohibited from doing so because of unbelief, and God started to work with a subsequent generation. And they finally entered according to the book of Joshua, and it wasn't until they got into Canaan that the manna stopped because now the manna, or the bread from heaven, was no longer needed because they were in the land of milk and honey. So God is providing for them like clockwork for 40 years. In fact, it's interesting, it talks about how their shoes for 40 years didn't even wear out. Um, There was a pillar of fire to guide them and a cloud to guide them by day, pillar of fire to guide them by night. It's just amazing what God did in terms of provision. And this is something you should think about too because now a lot of you I know are in situations where you're having to choose between the job or the jab and you're wondering is God really going to provide for you? You know, should you make, should you follow your convictions and consequently lose your job? And all you got to do is think back to booths. Uh, God is an expert at providing for his people. You know, God doesn't need your job to provide for you. He could provide for you through your job. Typically does it that way, but God doesn't say, oh no, they don't have a job anymore, what am I going to do? Well, God is going to do the same thing for you that he did for the nation of Israel those 40 years when they were outside the land. So they were to set up at the Feast of Booths these sort of uh, huts that they got literally got into to remind them of God's shelter and protective covering those 40 years. And so that's what's going on with the Feast of Booths. And there's where they fall on the calendar. Israel had a calendar. You see in black there our calendar. And then you see the Israeli months and how they sort of overlap with our months at certain points. And then to those seven Levitical feasts, two more feasts were added to the calendar. Um, as you kind of work your way upward, you'll see there Hanukkah, uh, sometimes called the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. And, of course, we're entering the Christmas season. And so uh, Hebrews, uh, devout Jewish people, celebrate that particular feast. And basically what Hanukkah is about is it's about the liberation of the temple from Seleucid rule. Because there was a really bad guy about 167 B.C., named Antiochus Epiphanes, who essentially went into the rebuilt Jewish temple and he desecrated it, very similar to what the future Antichrist will do. And Daniel predicted that in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11, about 400 years in advance. And Israel fought back in the Maccabean time period under a man named Judas Maccabeus, whose name means the hammer. That's pretty powerful. And they actually liberated the temple from Seleucid rule. And the tiny nation of Israel enjoys a window of political freedom for probably a little over a 100 years. And so it was a miracle that God did where they won at all costs against the Seleucid desecration of the temple and according to Jewish law in order to rededicate the temple they have to have a 
a menorah that burns eight days, and they only had enough oil for one day, but they lit the menorah up anyway, and lo and behold, according to tradition, um, it burned miraculously eight days. And so Hanukkah, to commemorate all of this, is added to the Jewish calendar. And you'll find Yeshua, the Jewish name for Jesus, who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate these various feasts. And in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, you'll find Jesus traveling to Jerusalem not to just celebrate the Levitical feasts, but he also traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights or Dedication. I've actually been in Jerusalem when this is being celebrated and it's beautiful how they have everything lit up, uh, beautiful candles and, and lights, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, at our church, we do a Christmas uh, sort of candle lighting service. And so we're sort of uh, piggybacking a little bit, if you will, uh, concerning what Jesus was doing there. Because it's at that particular feast, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. And then as you kind of travel upwards, the final feast on the Jewish calendar is something called Purim. Uh, the I am ending in Hebrew just communicates plurality. You know, kind of like how we put an S at the end of a noun in English to communicate plurality. So Purim basically means lots. And that is to commemorate what the Lord did for the Jewish people in the book of Esther, where a Persian by the name of Haman developed a plot to wipe out the Jewish people. And he actually, you know, cast lots concerning the specific day that the eradication of the Jewish nation would take place. And God, as you study the book of Esther in the Persian time period, through the work of you know Esther and Mordecai, God providentially and sovereignly worked, and the Jewish people were miraculously spared, and Haman was hung on the very gallows that he had devised um, for, I believe it was Mordecai. So Purim comes out of that, and it's interesting that any time anybody has um, an ambition to wipe out the nation of Israel, not only does the nation of Israel survive, but they actually get a holiday out of the whole thing. And so, you know, it's an outworking of what God said. You know, whoever curses you, I will curse. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. So those those are basically, and there's a lot of people that are much more skilled at giving you the specific details of these feasts, but that's basically what they are. Seven Levitical feasts and then two added to the Jewish calendar later. So, so far, so good. That's wonderful history for us to know. The problem, though, and the reason I'm bringing this up in our rapture study, is people are saying, well, the rapture of the church, that's us. The the rapture of the church and the rapture consisting of doctrine for the church and not for Israel So they're intermingling church and Israel when they convey this. They're trying to argue, and almost every year I've seen this happen. It seems to be picking up more and more steam. 
people are trying to say that the rapture of the church has to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. Why do they think that? Well, because Jesus described the Feast of Trumpets with a trumpet. He said, and he will send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and gather his elect from the four winds of the earth from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, this is, people think this is the rapture. If you've been following our series, this is not the rapture. This, first of all, it doesn't have the ingredients of the rapture. The rapture has two things, harpazo, catching up, and a resurrection. There is no resurrection here. And number two, there's no catching up here. This is not a vertical gathering. This is a horizontal gathering of a persecuted nation at the end of the tribulation period. And we believe that this event will happen on the Feast of Trumpets on the Jewish calendar system. But people want to go beyond what's written and they want to connect this with the rapture. Why? Because there's a trumpet there. And how does Paul describe the rapture? With a trumpet. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Aha, rapture equals trumpet. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:52 says in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Those are rapture passages connected to a trumpet and people see the word trumpet here and they see it over in Matthew 24 verse 31 and they use what I call the ram jam and cram method of interpretation meaning they capitalize on one point of similarity. And there is a point of similarity. It's the trumpet, but they ignore all the differences. So just pretend like the differences don't exist, but we see a trumpet here, and poor God, you know, of course, only has one trumpet, right? I mean, even as you study Israel's history, you see he has multiple trumpets, And why can't God have a trumpet for the close of the church age and a completely different trumpet for the rescue of Israel at the end of the tribulation period at the Feast of Trumpets? So I'm just giving you the mindset people have. And so since these things are allegedly all speaking of the same trumpet, and since this trumpet, the Matthew 24, 31 trumpet, is going to be sounded at the... Feast of Trumpets, the first fall feast, then every time that feast rolls around, everybody starts getting ready for the rapture. That's the mindset. And many, many Christians who aren't taught correctly think think this. So what I was doing in our prior session is I was giving you four reasons why that is not true. Um, the first three we've already covered in depth, and so I won't re-talk our way through all of those. You can go into last week's archive and pick up on that. But just to kind of refresh your memory, the first problem with that mindset is it denies eminency. And we've gone into a lot of detail in our series on eminency concerning the rapture. The way the rapture is always set up in the New Testament whenever it's referred to 
in context is it's referred to as something that can happen in the next split second. There is no prophesied signs or series of signs that has to happen before the rapture can occur. The rapture could occur on the Feast of Trumpets, but then again, it could occur at any time because the Lord wants us to, us to be ready all of the time, right? And so if you're telling me not that the rapture could occur on the Feast of Trumpets, but has to happen on the Feast of Trumpets, you, you start to see that that's a problem because what they're saying is then the rapture can't occur any other time of the year. There's trumpets at the bottom of the screen. It's got to occur then. Well, what about the rest of the year? Well, everybody kind of relaxes. It doesn't have to occur any other time. So therefore, you're denying the doctrine of eminency. You see that? Um, a second problem, which this to me is the, the greater problem, is when people say the rapture of the church has to happen on trumpets, they're taking the church of Jesus Christ and they're putting the church under the Mosaic law. The whole book of Galatians was written against that happening. Um, And this has become a big deal in our day because of something called the uh, Hebrew Roots Movement. At first you hear the idea of the Hebrew Roots Movement, and it sounds good. They're studying the Old Testament. They're studying the feasts. Um, I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of going to seminars and listening to people explain in detail the feasts just to give us a better uh, perspective on the Hebrew underpinnings of Christianity. But the problem is what you start to find in not all, but in some elements of the Hebrew, Hebrew roots movement is they're saying this is not just something you study. This is something you have to do. It's no longer voluntary. It's obligatory and it's mandatory. And if you don't do it, then you're not a Christian. Or if you don't do this, then you can't grow as a Christian. Now we have a problem. (laughs) Because Paul wrote the whole book of Galatians against that perspective. So when people are saying the rapture which concerns the church has to happen on a Hebrew feast day, it's a subtle way of taking the church of Jesus Christ and putting it under the Mosaic law. The key thing to understand is that when God brought the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai, after 400 years of Egyptian bondage, he gave them a legal code called the Mosaic law. God did not put the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law to redeem a nation. Why is that? Because redemption via the Passover lamb had already taken place. God did not put the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law to redeem a nation. He gave it rather to a redeemed nation. See the difference? Because now after 400 years of bondage with your whole history wiped out, and now you've been redeemed, how do you as a redeemed nation interact with God. Oh, the first two the first four commandments of what we call the Decalogue answer that question. 
okay, how do we as a redeemed nation relate not vertically to God, but also horizontally towards each other? Oh, uh, commandments 6 through 10 answer that question. Okay, um, then how do we as a redeemed nation interact with the rest of the world? Oh, Exodus 19 answers that question by calling the nation of Israel a kingdom of priests. Well, yeah, but as a redeemed nation, how do we worship the Lord? Oh, the tabernacle instructions and construction, which is all part of this mosaic system, part of the Sinai revelation. That answers that question as well. So the Mosaic law was, oh, and by the way, what do we do if we sin again and fall out of fellowship with God? Do we become unredeemed? No, but fellowship was broken. Well, how do we restore broken fellowship? Oh, the ceremonial aspects, sacrifices, animal sacrifices of the Mosaic law answer that question. So the whole Mosaic law was never given to redeem a nation. It was given to a redeemed nation, teaching them how to live as God's special nation, giving them their um, identity. And the thing to understand is Leviticus 23 is part of that system. Part of that system was a calendar. Part of that system were feast days. And... A great thing to understand to avoid confusion on this is that system, as I've tried to explain it, was given to one nation. It was given only to the nation of Israel. It was not given to the Phoenicians. It was not given to the Egyptians. It was not given to the Babylonians. It wasn't even given to the church, which didn't even exist yet. It wasn't given to the United States of America. It was given only to the nation of Israel. Now, how do I how do I know that? Because in my Bible, I have Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. Is that in your Bible? The answer would be yes, of course. Where the psalmist says, concerning this whole legal system that I've tried to explain, he, that's God, declares his words to the first Presbyterian church of, no, He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. Jacob, synonym for Israel. Now watch this. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So this legal system was only given at Sinai to one nation not to give them redemption, but because they were redeemed. This system, which Leviticus 23 is part of, which the Feast of Trumpets is part of, is part of that whole Mosaic system given only to the nation of Israel. So hopefully you're starting to see the problem with saying the rapture which concerns the church has to happen on the Feast of Trumpets. You just took the church and put it under a system, a calendar system, that God gave only to one nation, the nation of Israel. So now, as I said before, when you talk like this, people get really nervous. They start to 
fidget around and they start to leaf through their papers and they they start to get on their phone and look things up. Um, you know why they get nervous? Because they think they think what I'm saying is, oh, you are anti. What's the full word? Antinomian. Antinomian means against the law. You're tearing down the Mosaic law, and therefore you're teaching Christians are just to be lawless. You know, you're a free grace preacher, so you don't believe in holy living. You know, you think it's okay for people to go out and break God's law at will. And why do they think that? Because they, they hear us saying we're speaking against the law. Okay, we are not speaking against the law because the New Testament puts you under a new legal system. That new legal system is called the law of Christ, Galatians 6 verse 2. It's also called the law of the Spirit, Romans 8 verse 2. It's found primarily in the New Testament, exclusively in the New Testament, primarily in the epistles, the letters. We know what the epistles are, right? The epistles are not the wives of the apostles, as I used to think. The epistles are letters, New Testament letters. And our primary instructions in terms of something being mandatory, obligatory, is found in the epistles. You'll also find John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse, is primarily aimed at the church, the coming church age. So we are under a legal system that looks similar to the law of Moses at points. For example, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Well, why not repeat the Tenth Commandment? Because we're under a new legal system. Our system looks similar to the law of Moses, but it's vastly different. Uh, I've used this example before. If I commit a crime in Texas... I'm going to be tried under Texas law. Amen to that? That's the way it should be. Yeah, but pastor, you grew up in California. Why aren't you tried under California law? Well, quite frankly, I'd rather be tried in California because they have a tendency to be a little more lenient (laughs) over there than in Texas. But it doesn't matter. Even though the offense that I've committed in Texas, if I had done it in California, it would be the identical crime. I'm going to be tried in Texas because the moment I changed my residency from California to Texas, I came under a new legal system. And the the fact of the matter is the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ, is under a completely different set of standards and rules that you're not going to find in the law of Moses, even though it looks similar to the law of Moses at points. So Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 14, says, You are not under law, Mosaic law, but under what? Grace. We're under a totally different system. Well, then that means Paul is antinomian. Because let me tell you, the Pharisees of his day, they threw that charge at him so fast. They charged him with loose living and teaching loose living and teaching licentiousness, and that's where he goes out of his way to explain that the life of the New Testament Christian is not to go back to the flesh, but to walk by the 
by the Spirit. So we're under a completely different system called Romans 8, verse 2, the law of the Spirit or the law of Christ. Under the law of the Spirit and the law of Christ, you will find no reference to a calendar. Under the law of the Spirit and or the law of Christ, you will find no reference to an obligatory, mandatory feast system. Because those are part of a different legal code that concerns um, the nation of Israel. So the truth of the matter is once you start to say the rapture will happen on the Feast of Trumpets is the moment you just took a component of the Mosaic Law and you brought the church under it. And the Law of Moses is a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. You don't get to pick what parts of it you're under and what parts you're not under. You put one little finger under that mosaic system, you're under everything. And you all obviously don't believe we're under it, or else you would have brought an unblemished lamb to sacrifice today, which I don't hear any little baby lambs. And you really shouldn't be here on Sunday. You should be here on Saturday. Uh, Did anybody come here Saturday? I did because we had a men's breakfast. But (laughs) other than that, I don't think I would be here on a Saturday, etc., so, and, and here's the third point I was trying to make last week, is to argue that the rapture has to happen on a feast day is basically to misunderstand the nature of the church. The church, and here are the differences between Israel and the church. You say, are, all the different, are those all the differences? No, that's just one slide. Multiply that slide by three and you'll get our full teaching on it. But we've gone through the 24 differences between Israel and the church. Just a few of them are mentioned here. Israel was a political nation. Not so the church. Because the church consists of believers who have been scattered all over the world. Paul the Apostle makes it very clear that the church is not a nation when he says to Israel, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. So as God is pouring out his grace on the church, Israel is getting jealous. She's wanting her place of privilege back. And God specifically says, when I pour out my grace on the church, it will be on a group of people that are not a nation. And because we are not a nation, we have no calendar. We're completely dateless. We have no system like they had. Uh, here, Here it shows you all the Jewish months. We don't have anything like that. Here it shows you the seven Levitical feasts. It had to be celebrated at specific times. The New Testament, Revelation, Law of Christ, Law of the Spirit reveals nothing like that. Two other feasts are added to the calendar, Hanukkah and Purim. We don't have anything mandatory that we're supposed to celebrate these. Can you celebrate them just to enjoy the Jewish roots of Christianity? Hey, go for it. Uh, you know, I could I could find you examples where Paul, who is the figure 
in the Bible that most clearly communicated these principles would go back under certain feasts for certain times. He took the Nazarite vow, for example, Numbers 6. He actually offered an, an animal sacrifice in Acts 21, verse 26, but he always did it to avoid not offending the Jews because it's hard to reach people you're simultaneously offending. But he never did it as mandatory to become a Christian or to grow as a Christian. This is my problem with what's happening in so much of the Hebrew Roots movement today is they're acting as if this is mandatory or obligatory, and it is not. Now, here's a passage I didn't have a chance to share with you last time that's directly on point. It says, Therefore, no one, written to the church, church age, in Colossae by Paul, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when people are saying, you better celebrate these feasts, and the rapture will happen on the Feast of Trumpets, they're basically violating what Paul is explaining in the law of the Spirit and the law of Christ that we're not bound in a mandatory, obligatory sense to the the festival Israeli system. And all of these things are forgotten by people when they're arguing that the rapture, which concerns the end of the church age, will happen on a feast day. So then comes, you know, when you talk like this, here's the question that comes at you very fast. Okay, then why did God start the church on a feast day? I mean, if you're telling me that the church age doesn't have to end on a feast day with the rapture, why did God start the whole thing on a feast day? And they're right. In Acts chapter 2, the church started. You say, well, pastor, I've been reading Acts 2 for a long time, and I don't see anything in Acts 2 where it says, thus saith the Lord, the church is starting now. So I want to explain to you why we think the church started in Acts 2. We went into this in our ecclesiology series. So I won't go into all the details, but just in summary fashion, there are six reasons why we think the church started in Acts 2. First reason is Jesus said when he was alive and on the earth towards the end of his life, I will build my church. He put the church in the future tense, meaning the church didn't exist when he made that statement. Number two, Paul referred to the church as a mystery. A mystery is something that is unknown but now disclosed. So I'm giving you reasons why you can't find the church in the Old Testament, nor can you find the church in the ministry of Jesus, except by Jesus making a few hints of its soon coming and advent. Number three, the church did not start prior to Acts 1, the Ascension chapter. 
Because at the ascension, Jesus became the head of the church. I mean, do we believe that Jesus is the head of the church? Yes, Ephesians 5 verse 23 says that. Well, when did he become the head of the church? After he ascended. Where do we find that in the Bible? It's in Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. So if you have a church before the ascension in Acts 1, you have a body without a head. The headless horseman, right? The fourth reason that the church started in Acts 2 and did not exist prior to Acts 1 is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, are necessary for a church to function. If the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not in operation at any given church, it's best to find another church. And by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I'm not talking about a lot of the charismatic chaos out there. What I'm talking about is the edificatory gifts, administration, leadership, teaching. I mean, I hope I'm exercising a spiritual gift here. If I'm not exercising a spiritual gift here, then you best go somewhere else to church because the purpose of church is to edify God's people through the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. You have to understand that prior to the ascension, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were not in operation yet. How do we know that? Because Ephesians 4, 7 through 11 tells us that the first thing Jesus did when he ascended to the right hand of the Father is he gave to the church spiritual gifts. So you can't have a church before the ascension or else you have a church without spiritual gifts, which are necessary for a church to function. The church existed before Paul. Lots of people today trying to argue that the church started with Paul. The church did not start with Paul. Paul, in the book of Ephesians explain the mystery of the church. But people are confusing the explanation with the starting point. Paul, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, did not start the church. He was explaining what God started. Man does not start the new dispensations. God does. So Paul was given the explanation. So don't confuse explanation with starting point. And we know that the church existed before Paul because Paul talks about the church that he once persecuted. So how can the church start with the conversion of Paul in Acts 9 when Paul tells us that as Saul, he was persecuting the church prior to Acts 9? I mean, what was he persecuting exactly if the church wasn't yet in existence? So you see what's happening here is I'm starting to narrow down when this whole thing started. It had to start after the ministry of Christ. It had to start after the ascension. But it started before the apostle Paul. So when did it start? The key thing that starts to happen in the church age is the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit starts to take men and women who have exercised faith for salvation in the Messiah that 
national Israel rejected, when they exercise faith in that Messiah for the safekeeping of their soul, is the moment that the Holy Spirit takes that person and baptizes. Don't get water in here because this is not talking about water. This is waterproof right here. Baptize just means identify. The Holy Spirit took a person that believes in Christ for salvation and connects them. Maybe the sound effects aren't perfect, but (laughs) connects them to a body, a new man. So now we just have to figure out when did that start? Because if you can figure out when that baptizing ministry started, you can identify when the church started. Jesus, in Acts 1, verse 5, tells his disciples prior to his ascension, after his resurrection, you will be baptized in the Spirit not many days from now. That's in Acts 1. What comes after Acts 1? Acts 2. And then Peter, in Acts 11, verses 15 and 16 is answering the question, well, wait a minute. Everybody saved so far has been Jewish in the church age. We just saw a Gentile get saved. I mean, can God save a Gentile? Because Cornelius and his entourage, Acts 11, were saved. So Peter has to travel to Jerusalem, where the headquarters of the church were at that time, And he has to explain to all of these Hebrew Christians that, yes, a Gentile can get saved. Well, how do you know, Peter, a Gentile got saved? It's the first Jerusalem council, Acts 11. Peter says, here's how I know. Because Cornelius was baptized in the Holy Spirit just like we were from the beginning. So Peter says what happened to Cornelius also happened to us. Now, Jesus put the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit future, Acts 1-5. Peter says it already started, Acts 11. And you go right through Acts 1 and Acts 11, and you try to figure out when that baptizing work started, and the only place it fits is when the Spirit fell in Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost. So the church started Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the reason, here's the, here's the central point. Everything else has been introduction, okay? Here's the central point. The reason God started the church in Acts 2 has nothing to do with putting the church under a calendar. It has everything to do with God sending a message to unbelieving Israel. The message that God sent to unbelieving Israel on Pentecost is the same message he sent to them on first fruits, is the same message he sent to them on unleavened bread, is the same message he sent to them on Passover, the four spring feasts. He was telling them they have everything they need for the kingdom to come. But you have rejected me. You have turned me down. And so the kingdom is in a state of postponement. Let's uh, 
walk through some of those if we could. Um, the first is Passover. And what I'm going through here is the significance of the spring feasts. And I just want to show you a pattern. Is someone vacuuming up there? I keep hearing like a zzz. So maybe someone could go tell them that now is not the best time to do the vacuuming. Um, that would be, that'd be nice. Do you guys hear that or am I just hearing things? All right. Might be a hearing aid? Okay. Okay, that's cool. Hearing aids are cool. Vac- vacuuming and rearranging the decor, hammers and nails, probably not the best time for that. Um, what do you guys want to talk about here? I lost my train of thought. All right. Passover. What exactly happened on Passover? That's spring feast number one. Okay. What is Passover about? We know what Passover is about. Passover is about the Passover lamb. They had to apply the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorpost to be exempted from God's wrath in plague number 10 in Egypt. God was very clear concerning the Passover lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, John the Baptist showed up, and who did he point to as the Passover lamb? Jesus Christ. The next day he saw Jesus coming, this is John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John the Baptist on this first spring feast said, Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the nation of Israel said, thanks, but no thanks. That's rejection number one. Where did they reject him? It's right there in John 1 verse 11. Right before John 1 verse 29 is recorded. And it says, he, that's Jesus, came to his own. Who would his own be? The nation of Israel. And those who were his own did not receive him. So Christ fulfilled spring feast number one, Passover. He was the Passover lamb and the nation of Israel rejected it. Then comes the second um, spring feast called unleavened bread. When did Jesus fulfill the feast of unleavened bread in his first I am statement? Seven times or so in John's gospel, he said, he, he identifies himself as the great I am. And in the first statement, he says, I am the bread of life. And when he said, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am fulfill, I am the fulfillment, I am the embodiment of spring feast number two, unleavened bread. And the nation of Israel said, thanks, but what? No thanks. And where did they say no thanks? They said no thanks in John chapter six and verse 41, which comes right after verse 35. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. So that's rejection number two. Then comes spring feast number three, first fruits. And that was fulfilled by Jesus when he rose from the dead. 
How do we know that? Because Paul calls the resurrection of Christ the first fruits, right? But now Christ has become raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's Jewish language there. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he was fulfilling firstfruits. And the nation of Israel at that point said, Thanks, but what? No thanks. Because you'll find in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, the Jewish authorities telling the centurions, just lie. Just say someone stole the body. And Oh, and by the way, here's a bunch of bribe money. This is the leadership of the nation of Israel doing this. Here's a bunch of bribe money to explain that the resurrection and the empty tomb is nothing more than a a stolen body. So what you see there with the third spring feast is rejection number three. Then comes rejection number four on the day of Pentecost, where all of these Jews, this is why God did it on this day, had come from all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Why did they come to celebrate Pentecost? Because that's what Leviticus 23 told them to do. And this is when the miracles occur concerning the tongues of fire on the apostles' heads. Uh, This is where the miracle of tongues takes place. Tongues is a terrible translation because people think that means gibberish or their personal private prayer language. The word for tongue is glossolalia, and it's also dialecto, where we get the word glossary and dialect. It's the capacity to speak in a known language that's understandable that you never learned. And so this happens on the day of Pentecost, and the nation of Israel says, thanks, but no thanks, because they attributed that phenomenon to drunkenness. Acts 2, verse 13. And that's why 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, calls tongues or languages a sign for the unbeliever. So I hope you're seeing a pattern here. The first four four spring feasts unfold, and every single time the nation of Israel rejects, 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 rejects. So what is necessary for the nation of Israel to ever receive the kingdom is they have to have a change of heart. That's why Acts 2 is followed by Acts 3. This is Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts, and Peter explains this. He says to the Jewish leadership, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the 
Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, which God spoke by the mouth of his holy apostles from ancient times. Things will not change for this nation until your heart changes. And until your heart changes, you're not going to have the kingdom or the king because the times of refreshing won't come and he will be in heaven functioning not as king but as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That scenario doesn't change until Israel changes because her pattern is every time he fulfills a feast, they turn it down. Now, a lot of you are saying, well, pastor, you're talking like a crazy person. I've never heard doctrines like this ever spoken before. And so that's why I like to quote people that know a lot more than I do. This is a 1965 doctoral dissertation by Terry Hulbert entitled The Eschatological Significance of Israel's Annual Feasts. Quote, when God fulfilled the first four feasts, he had provided everything necessary for Israel to enter into literal kingdom blessing, redemption, separation, resurrection, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Israel's rejection of these, however, made a necessary national change of heart before the kingdom could ever be established. The Paschal Lamb of God pointed out by John the Baptist was rejected as an imposter. The resurrection of Christ, as it answered the Feast of First Fruits, was suppressed in its proclamation by the bribe money paid to the sentries. Finally, the coming of the Holy Spirit was rejected at Pentecost as the Jews taunted the apostles with charges of drunkenness. By the time of the close of Acts chapter 2, God had done all he could do for Israel until they repented as a nation. Thus, the significance of Peter's second sermon in Acts 3, we just read the verses from it, was that it reemphasized the condition of millennial blessing already laid down in the Old Testament, but is yet unfulfilled. Of the utmost importance here is the fact that the shedding of the blood of Christ to take away sin... And with the coming of the Spirit to empower life of the redeemed, all of the spiritual requirements for the millennial kingdom had been met as far as God was concerned. But God's provision could not be operative until man, in this case Israel, appropriated it. This point cannot be overemphasized for it is not only the reason for the delay of the fulfillment of the final three feasts, it is the basis for understanding the relationship of the church to the feasts. So following these spring feasts, look at the bottom of the screen. You see Pentecost? That's the last feast of the spring. You've got a long delay until the coming of the remaining fall feasts, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. In trumpets, atonements, and tabernacles, Israel will have a change of heart. For they will end up accepting in the events surrounding the second advent what they rejected in the events surrounding the first advent. First four spring feasts, first advent, 
rejection, a long delay, final three fall feasts, acceptance involving the second coming. You seeing a pattern here? So here's my question. What's happening in that long delay? You're happening in that delay. I'm happening in that delay. The church age is happening in that delay. And the church age has nothing to do with this calendar system. It started on Pentecost to communicate the final message to Israel. But there's this long delay. And it will end with the rapture. And once the rapture of the church takes place, God will fulfill the final three feasts for Israel after the church is gone. So what is really going to happen on trumpets, which is the first of three fall feasts? Jesus is going to gather his elect, that's Israel, at the end of the tribulation period from the four corners of the earth. That's not the rapture. That's the regathering of a believing Israel on trumpets. That's fall feast number one. Well, what is going to happen on atonement? Fall feast number two. Essentially, that's when Christ will be identified as the one that they've all been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of Leviticus 16, and the nation of Israel will be converted. Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That is the fulfillment of atonement. That's when all Israel will be saved. Well, what's going to happen on the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths is a symbol of the millennial kingdom because in Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 18, when the millennial kingdom transpires, the nations will go to visit Jesus in Jerusalem on the Feast of Booths. So everything that they rejected in the first for spring feasts in his set, in his first coming is now going to be accepted after this long delay, which is us, in the second coming. Trumpets, acceptance rather than rejection. Atonement, acceptance rather than rejection. Booths, acceptance rather than rejection. And when you understand this timeline as I've tried to explain it, you start to see that these feasts have absolutely nothing to do with the church, even though it's true that God did start the church on the day of Pentecost. He did not start the church on the day of Pentecost to put the church under a calendar system. Um, If some of this is murky and ambiguous to you, I highly, highly recommend this book by Thomas Ice and Tim LaHaye called Charting the End Times. And they have, in that book, the best explanation of these feasts. Thomas Ice writes, the three fall feasts 
await fulfillment in the events that will take place at the second coming of Christ and in the millennium. The Feast of Trumpets will take place at the second coming, as Matthew 24, verse 31 indicates. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. The Day of Atonement will be applied to the nation of Israel when the people, that's Israel, realize that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah all along. That's when Zechariah 12, verse 10 is fulfilled. That's when Romans 11, 25 through 27 is fulfilled. And then he finally writes here, and the Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled by the Millennial Kingdom when the Jewish nation will dwell with their God in the land of Israel for 1,000 years. So to answer question number one, And we may do a part three on this. I don't know. (laughs) Number one, will the church, will the rapture happen on trumpets? Well, it could, but it doesn't have to. If you say it could, number one, you just denied eminency. Number two, you just put the church and put it under the Mosaic law. And number three, you've misunderstood the nature of the church, which has no calendar system. Well, then, Mr. Wise Guy, why did the church begin on the day of Pentecost? God started the church on the day of Pentecost to communicate something to the nation of Israel that they had everything they needed for the kingdom to come, including the Holy Spirit, which they rejected. And and God is now working in this long delay, the church age, in between the last spring feast and the beginning of the first fall feast. But little Israel, don't despair. Don't worry. Because you're going to have a change of heart. It's going to take the events of the tribulation to bring in that change of heart. But you will have a change of heart. And everything you rejected in first advent will now be accepted in the second advent. And that's when trumpets, atonement, and booths will be fulfilled. I went way over time. Does this, does any of this help? All right. And what are you going to say? No. And... <laughs> Father, we, th- we thank you for uh, this calendar system you've given to Israel. We thank you for your work with the church. Lots of confusion um, about this in the last days as we come into a season where people are talking a lot about prophecy, but there's not a lot of accurate Bible teaching. So help us to be accurate interpreters of your word. I pray that you'll bless the main service that follows. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, happy many, many, many intermission.